0: gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, Terry Wilkie will speak with Brent Ragsdale about Agrovoltaics. Brent Ragsdale is a mechanical engineer who aspires to help address Earth's ecological crisis and to minimize humanity's biophysical impact through energy transition and using less resources in general. Industrial solar is in the news is the use of land for agriculture and solar power generation. We can treat them as complements to the other instead of as competitors. By allowing working land to stay working, agrivoltaic systems could help farmers diversify income. Brent will provide a report from the first Solar Farm Summit, which happened in Chicago in March 2023. The 2024 Solar Farm Summit will happen again in Chicago in July 2024. Brent will share trends in solar PV photovoltaics within the context of the great energy transition. Brent has been very impressed by Jack's Solar Garden in Colorado. Rest assured, we will have more EcoRadio KC programs about the solar future. Can we grow around solar collectors? Here comes the clean energy revolution. EcoRadio is glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. We support the works for a future in which humans flourish as members of a thriving ecosphere. We are all in this together and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. This will be a great radio hour. Now our show.
1: Good evening. Welcome to ECO Radio. This is Brent Ragsdale. Um, I'm in the studio tonight. I'm kind of excited to do a live show. I've been done so many pre-recorded and Zooms through the last few years of COVID, but it's nice to be back in the studio with Terry Wilkie. She's our engineer and at the board today. And uh, despite what Darnell told you in the introduction, I'm going to do a little bit of a change-up because we've got a, a special guest to join us tonight, and that is... Karen Willie, one of the commissioners, county commissioners from Douglas County, who was instrumental in developing their uh, what I would consider progressive uh, ordinances for um, the use of uh, land for both uh, energy production and for agriculture, which is what we're going to talk about tonight under the guise of AgriVoltaic. So, Karen, welcome to the show.
2: Good evening. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, so. I'm uh, our plan was that Terry was going to interview me, which I've never really been the, the guest on the show, but when I spoke with you today and, and saw that you were available, then I'm, I'm glad that you were able to come in. But I think that I will do a little more talking than usual in this first part, to, because I've, I've just recently given a talk, a public talk on agrivoltaics that we will put in our uh, show notes so people can go and, and listen to that if they would like to. There's a YouTube video. I was invited by the Master Gardeners of Douglas County to give a talk on agrivoltaics, and that was last weekend at at the fairgrounds in Lawrence, and it was pretty well attended. I heard there were over 100 people there between the people that were uh, on Zoom, and uh, there were quite a a number there in the crowd, including Terry. So... um, How I came to give a talk on agrivoltaics when I really uh, don't have that much expertise uh, is kind of an interesting story, so maybe I'll start there. Uh, A year ago, I was working for an energy company, and we had a customer, a big project, and they were interested in putting in a solar array, a fairly large one, and it went from being kind of rooftop and maybe carport kind of design to being out in a kind of remote meadow that had always been hayed. And so I got interested in this agrivoltaics topic to see if there would be a way that we could do that and d- disrupt that land as little as possible. And so I started doing some research online and I came across an organization, you know, just doing searches that is called the Agrivoltaics Clearinghouse and I, Karen, I think you probably know them. I think you, you did a similar deep dive into agrivoltaics maybe a few years earlier, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but that group, the uh, Agri- AgriSolar Clearinghouse, um, from there, they had a lot of webinars and interesting information, and I found out that there was going to be a first annual solar summit, which was called the Solar Farm Summit. So the first expo in North America specifically about agrivoltaics and so I decided to go and represent our not-for-profit that we do. Uh, my wife and I run a not-for-profit n- called Botanical Belonging on our property where we would, it would not be out of the question to install some voltaics to, uh, as a demonstration. And then we also volunteer with KC uh, Farm School in Kansas City, Kansas and they have expressed interest in this. And so I thought well I'll just go. And See what this is about see what I can learn and report back to those two groups and then also go visit my folks in Seattle So that was a really interesting trip. I would say that was quite a successful first um, uh, Expo on this subject. They had more than 300 people. I think more people than they were expecting to have and um, the Agro Solar Clearinghouse they were some of the management that put it on and then there were also other industry groups, there was one specifically called the, the American Solar Grazing Association. And you could tell that that, that the grazing idea along with Agri, with uh, solar panels was a big deal because they had a sheep in their, in their logo, a sheep in face in front of a, a solar panel. But there were also a lot of government agencies, a lot of this was through the Department of Energy and then through the EPA and then then some people from the the USDA, some national labs, several universities and then in addition to being um, presentations and uh, panels, they also had kind of a trade show where they had vendors that sold um, solar panels, they had a lot of people that did native plant seeds. some things around uh, beekeeping and things like that. So I think it was a good, a good experience. Well, anyway, my, my friends in the, in the uh, Master Gardener group found out that I'd been there and asked me to come and give a talk. So that's what I did. Um, so some of this that I'm going to give in this first section is me kind of giving a recap of my talk. So when I was doing my research, I came across a a group online that is sponsored by NREL, which is the National Renewable Energy Lab. And they had some interesting maps online, including maps of all the agrivoltaics that they had in their database. And interestingly, there was only one project in the state of Kansas that had both solar panels and agriculture, that was in South Hutchison a 10-acre solar farm where they were also growing alfalfa underneath the panels. So some of my takeaways from these maps that I saw was that there is a lot of interest in this, both around the world and in the nation, but not so much in our area. So even though we've got so much potential for doing solar energy, along with the wind that we've, we've done so much of, we're a little bit behind. So that was sort of one of my takeaways from that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the three main types of agriculture that they pair with, um, at, with solar panels to, to be this, this uh, class of agrivoltaics. And that's basically either to graze animals, and it seems that the preferred animal is sheep, and we'll talk about that. I think you've got some sheep experience, so we'll, we'll we'll pick your brain on that as well. But then also the growing of vegetables, so grow, growing some cash crop. And then the third idea is to what provide what they call ecological services. So can we grow native plants or increase the biodiversity in that region or maybe improve the soil by growing native plants. So those were sort of the three broad Things. And so the other thing I saw was that, by far, the grazing of sheep was the most popular. And so um, I met a person that was one of the presenters there, um, a young man named Byron Kominick from Colorado, and he has a farm that was a family farm called Jack's Solar Farm or Solar Garden. And that uh, he's also a bit of an ambassador for the solar, for the agrivoltaics. And I understand that you met him through Zoom a few years ago because in addition to being an ambassador and having uh, a live farm where they're really growing vegetables and really making electrons for the grid, he also has a not-for-profit that's called the Colorado Agrivoltaics Learning Center. And their mission is really to help um, county commissions and similar legislative bodies work on their regulations so that we can zone agricultural land, rural land, to be for both um, energy production and also for agriculture. And he gave a presentation sort of to to your group. Is that a a fair summary of it
2: we may have been um on the front side of that work for him i think we were maybe the first that had contacted him Uh, while douglas county was working on building our regulations not just on agrivoltaics but all of our solar regulations for utility scale for the county we do not yet have a project at this scale um We put together a group of stakeholders, mostly local stakeholders, to just talk to the county commission. I was not yet on the county commission at that time, um, about the possibility of agrivoltaics. And we brought him in through Zoom to have a conversation about uh, the experience that he had, because many of us uh, may have a farm background, as I do, or a soil health background, which I also do, but did not have specific uh, experience grazing or growing vegetables around solar panels, and he did.
1: All right. And that and you were on the Planning Commission at that point, is that correct? That's
2: right. And that is the uh, body that was working on d- drafting the regs to begin with. They have to be adopted by the County Commission, which they were unanimously adopted. Um, but the Planning Commission is a 10-person volunteer board uh, appointed by the County and the City Commission. And um, Within that, we had set aside a four-person ad hoc committee to do a deep dive not only into the vast amount of information of what's known and not yet known on utility-scale solar, um, but also to, to hear from the community. Um, that Projects like this are such a big change, and and, and they worry people. Um, we needed to kind of hear what people's fears were and opportunities, and then dive in and see which of those needed to be solved in the regs, which of them needed to be you know dealt with. That and some of those will just—they will stand, like the visual aspect of of, of utility-scale solar will.
1: Yeah. So before we, I think we'll save we'll save diving into the regulations for the next segment because we just have a few minutes before sure. we take our first break. But tell us a little bit about you. So where where do you live, and 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 what else do you do besides being a commissioner? I live Douglas in County.
2: southwestern Douglas County, so I live in the rural area. If you know that that part of the world, it's uh, near Lone Star Lake or south of Lone Star Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, I do raise grass-fed beef cattle. I have a great passion for soil health um, and ecological farming, so restoring the land as we grow food on it. Um, and that's the lens that I was taking into our solar regulations. Um, I have a doctorate in geography, so I have a science background. Um, and within that, I I did a lot with um, soil science. And so I have a little crossover. Um, and bringing that science lens to policy seems to be very important. Um, we we'd usually get people who work in policy that are not scientists. Um, and so finding kind of that where that practicality uh, comes, comes to bear was really important for this. Um, I've run a lot of for-profit businesses of my own, and I now work as a nonprofit consultant. So I've worn a lot of hats.
1: Yes, and, and you and I met about a year ago at the Wealth Day over in the state capitol. That's and right. I overheard you talking about agrivoltaics, I think, with some people, and I said, hey, I'm really super interested in that. And so we ended up having coffee and getting to know each other a bit. Um, I gave, um, at this talk, I leaned heavily on some information that was available from Um, Byron's website um, about agrivoltaics and um, I thought that in one of them uh, one of the links and we'll put this in our show notes was he calls agrivoltaics 101 and I think that has a very good definition of the potential problem if we don't address figuring out how we're going to use our rural lands where we do want to have power generation also for agriculture. So I'm just gonna read his kind of problem statement here because I think it's really worth it. So he says, most solar installations are developed with single single seed turf or bare ground beneath the panels. The grass seed is inexpensive and can be easily managed by the application of pesticides and occasional mowing. This type of vegetation management under panels can lead to decreased water retention, Less soil stability, reduced carbon sequestration, and a loss of habitat for pollinators, birds, and wildlife. So I think that your background in soil science, I think, I think you see that the the reason why we really want to come up with ways to not have every solar panel that's really um, installed be that be that way. We want to figure out a way that we can make um, instead of just either power production or agriculture, how can we zone it? How can we manage the regulations to encourage the the proper use of that land? And and so I think um, that's what we're gonna be talking about. What do you think of that problem statement?
2: Uh, Very much agree. And I would say in my mind, what I talk about is that we're working on decarbonizing our energy systems and recarbonizing our soils. And those can happen hand in hand.
1: That's great. Well, I think this might be a good time to take our first break. We'll be right back to Eco Radio. KC, thank you.
0: Hello, KKFI listeners. This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio. Beginning January 24th, AR is moving to Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Don't miss a single edition of Alternative Radio at 90.1 FM on your dial, and kkfi.org. And thanks for supporting Community Radio KKFI. You can now take KKFI with you wherever you go. Download the new KKFI app today. You can listen to live radio, explore the archives, and stay up to date with news. Find us on the App Store and Google Play. Your music, your community, anytime, anywhere. The KKFI
3: mobile app. I'm Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz, and this is Climate Connections. Each summer, high schoolers from across the country descend on Fort Worth, Texas for the solar car challenge. They race hundreds of miles in solar-powered electric cars that they design and build themselves. Sebastian Gonzalez is with the Iron Lions, a team from Greenville, Texas, that won its division in last year's race from Fort Worth to El Paso. He says they spent the school year creating a car that can charge up on solar alone and is efficient and fast. It's not just the solar energy that you're dealing with, but you're also dealing with battery chemistries and electronics that will drain as minimal power from an electrical system as possible. Their car looked almost like a solar panel on wheels with a pod for the driver peeking out the center. Gonzalez says people along the route were amazed to learn that their DIY creation could reach speeds of more than 70 miles an hour. When we told them our car can run from 9 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon when the race ends and we still have some battery left, these people get really, really shocked. Now Gonzalez's team is busy preparing for this year's race. He says what he and other participants are learning through the process can prepare them to help design and engineer a cleaner energy future. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org.
1: Welcome back to EcoRadio KC. I'm Brent Ragsdale. Um, My my guest this evening is Karen Willey, Douglas County, Kansas um, County Commissioner And we're talking about agrivoltaics this evening, which is quite uh, interesting and uh, an important topic, I think. So um, I wanna read a a little introduction or um, definition of agrivoltaics before we get back into the regulations. Um, Agrivoltaics is the use of land for agriculture and solar power generation, treating them as complementary instead of as competitors. By allowing the land to to stay working agrivoltaic systems can help farmers diversify income. And that was a statement from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So I know, Karen, that you've got an uh, ag background. You have a farm and you 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 raise cattle. And you, did you say that you have r- raised some sheep or you also raise sheep as well?
2: I have a few sheep, but I've dabbled in about everything within the of farm everything. sphere, yes. All right, all
1: right. So um, you were part of the Douglas County kind of volunteer task force that worked on recommendations for zoning changes so that that would allow us to develop agri-agrivoltaics in Douglas County.
2: That's right. So um, agrivolta well, uh, utility scale solar would happen if we get an application in Douglas County as a conditional use permit, so not to get too nerdy, but the zoning itself says is agriculture, and it, this is a conditional use. So it's, it's temporary, it has a start date and an end date. Uh, the time that we gave that was 25 years. That can be renewed, but that has to start over at that point. Um, and then all of the other conditions can be on top of that in terms of how we want the land to be dealt with. Um, now, utility-scale solar could be the largest single land use conditional use permit that we would ever see. And we do have an active application, which I think you might talk about later, but Mm -hmm. I will abstain until it comes to a vote for for me. Um, But yes, so, So that conditional use permit, we decided as a county that we needed to have regulations that spoke to that um, so we can add additional conditions on top of that should we need to that are site-specific, but we wanted to um, have our homework done so that when an application came forward, we knew what we needed to ask, and we knew what what the variables were going to be. So the two main things that we heard in the community that were kind of the largest fears were erosion and the use of chemicals. Those were two big factors people were very worried Worried about for something on this scale um, and both of those were related to the picture people had in their heads of what a solar installation would look like many of those those early ones were in the desert so they were barren or they were small and they were graveled uh, and then maintained with you know, with with chemicals uh, to, to keep the vegetation down and that of course was unacceptable for that amount of land and for for our land in Douglas County that we think is pretty precious and we have some great soils there um, so we really designed our regulations around how do we protect that ground and protect it uh, and maybe even heal it, in it additionally for the future of agriculture. So this would be zoned agriculture before the project, during the project, and after the project. So we wanted to leave that land uh, healthier than it started and really build soil health as an opportunity within the solar installation. And that's a high bar, and we recognize that. Um, So we wrote our regulations to have uh, a requirement of perennial natural vegetation, so native vegetation. Um, That is our our first choice there, or something that can work well with agriculture. So it's possible if you were planning a, a sheep grazing that you might want a different mix that went Went better for grazing, uh, of course, growing vegetables, any of those other kinds of agricultural uh, practices could mean that we didn't necessarily put native vegetation on all pieces of it, but that there had to be you know, perennial vegetation or active agriculture on every bit of it. The other piece, that, which is unique, that Douglas County was the first that I've heard of and I talked to all across the nation of nonprofits and and other places that we're, we're doing these regulations uh, is to minimize grade grading and not just to say we minimize it but that it is 5% or less of the area being proposed that's pretty small and what that does is it allows them to you know fix any drainage issues because this is going to be in place for 25 years um, possibly fix farm terraces if that's the case but not to take them out um, the, the idea is that they have to choose land that they can work with, and they're working with the natural contours of that land. So when we talked with engineers from the utility companies, they did say that, yes, our plan is to go in and we will bulldoze everything flat and and put in our installations. And that's the pictures that people have seen, for the most part, are very flat places. And they've been made mechanically flat. And that, as a soil health, enthusiast uh, was, was unacceptable to me. I said, we, we need to, um, we need to be able to work with the lay of the land. And we, we know that there are places that have done that. So it's, it's not too much to ask, but it's certainly different. Um, so that grading, but, but less than 5% of that, of that area, um, that okay. also meant that most of the land they were going to choose had to be pretty flat to begin with,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and it had to be fairly deep soils because We didn't allow the concrete piers, so those piers can be driven into the ground and pulled out of the ground, but you can't concrete them in because nothing can stay in the ground after that installation is gone because the idea is to turn this back to agriculture. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that it's cheaper for the company to not have to um, concrete those posts in. It's also better for the land because it's less disturbance. Um, So that puts us flat, deep land in Douglas County in direct conflict with um, our soils that are well valued for agriculture. And we knew that when we looked at the maps, there there were no spaces left um, to host a a use like this that weren't uh, rocky or steep or delicate or prone to erosion. So we're... So when we looked at that, we knew that we were putting those two things in conflict. And the solution for that is that these lands have to be honored in every possible way. And that means designing the program around soil health and growing food on it, if at all possible. So, And we do think it's possible. There's just, as a as a nation, as a world, really, we're still figuring out what those opportunities look like. Um, so it was hard to kind of dial in and say, you have to do it this this way because... Um, we kind of needed companies to bring forward their their best their best proposal and then let us work with it from there so we are waiting to see what that might look like All
1: right well i as i said in my talk to the master gardeners I, you know i i applaud the the commission for coming up with this regulation i think it's it's really well thought out and and it's going to be a model for kansas i hope and i really like that you know you're you're calling out no gravel you know you can't do that minimize the pesticides and and you know the the minimum amount of disturbance to the soil as well Um, when I talked to to Byron from the Jack's solar garden that was one of the points he made was make sure when you're installing them that you are very cautious about driving your heavy equipment because if you're gonna try to grow things later under there that compaction that soil compaction is going to be you know a problem but um i also appreciate that you know may, maybe i have the, a different attitude to some of your constituents but it seems to me that if it were native prairie ground i would have more of a problem with that than a land that's already been in agriculture for generations or for a really long time, because I think that's already been disturbed and in a lot of ways there's an opportunity to improve the soil health of land that's been in kind of traditional ag, you know, where we rely a lot on chemical inputs and a lot of disturbance. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Does that, is that sort of what you're thinking is as well?
2: Most likely we'll get two kinds of land that would be um, the majority of these applications. One would be currently in conventional agriculture, so um, high disturbance, uh, a lot of time where that land is barren and not growing anything, um, or um, what's currently used for for pasture. And usually most of our pastures are what we call stock set, so you move the cattle in, they have the whole access to the whole pasture, and then you move them out, um, and that can really erode your soils over the long period of time and and decrease your soil carbon Um, the kind of grazing that I try and practice and that we also recommend for for these would be rotational grazing so mm-hmm. that you're moving animals in a fairly high concentration but you're on a very short period of time and you move them around and it's known to uh, really increase your your soil health tremendously so these regulations are designed around soil health principles so it's uh, less disturbance uh, continuous cover with with good solid roots uh, diversity of plants and preferably livestock
1: yeah well um, so I, I, I don't want to pick on any, you know, particular company, but there are a lot of, of smaller, like what I would say, you know, maybe a 10-acre size solar array that you'll see around. And these are oftentimes um, just fenced in and mowed under there or probably sprayed with herbicide to keep the weeds down. And so that's they're not really zoned to be both for agriculture any longer, I suppose, or maybe they've just made that that county's just made a cutout and, and said, okay, this this uh, 10 acres can now be used for power production, you know, even though it's an agricultural zone. I'm not I'm not sure, but when you see these, that typically the utility scale um, solar arrays are what they call a single axis tracking array, so they're long rows that run north and south of the of the solar panels and then they just tilt in one direction east and west and so in the morning time they would be positioned towards the east and catch the rising sun and then during the day they would rotate to the west and these are a little more efficient in the power generation than just a fixed tilt one that is um, oriented to the south so one of the interesting things that the jack solar farm they are not doing so much grazing although I think they've tried some of that but it's more vegetable production so i I think that I'm glad that you that the regulations are also looking at you know testing that and encouraging that as a as a possible way to um, combine agriculture with power generation
2: yes and so you mentioned several types of, of agrovoltaics um, and I would kind of broaden that out the uh, Like the pollinators or native vegetation and bees and such, I would kind of lump that in as passive agrivoltaics, and that will be on every acre that falls under our Douglas County regulations. That's just part of what we've required. Um, So when we're talking agrivoltaics, we're thinking active agrivoltaics, which is in addition to those things. And those can be vegetables or specialty crops of different kinds. the grazing, which you mentioned, and sheep are the preferred for that because they don't climb and they don't push things over, uh, so not like a um, cattle or goats. Um, and the other would be native seed production. So that's another kind of concept that's come up as something that is scalable, um, but would also recognize that th- there's a lot of these installations that are going to be needed across the country. Many of them are going to need native seed sources and the seed is not available at that scale uh, or, or at a decent price point. So there's an, a, a business opportunity also to, to spend, you know, some energy learning how to grow those seeds within those rows and then harvest them and sell them to yeah. projects well, in the future.
1: I have some thoughts about that, but let's take our second break and we'll, we'll start there when we come back.
4: Hi, this is Bill Pierce. The All Souls Forum is moving from Thursday noon to Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. This is part of the new on-air schedule being rolled out at KKFI in the third week of January. Please join us for the All Souls Forum each Tuesday at 7 p.m. beginning January 23rd. you have feedback about the shows you hear on KKFI, the KKFI Listener Survey is the way to let us know. You can go online to kkfi.org slash survey and give us your thoughts on our programming.
5: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Byron Kamenek. He is the founder of Jack's Solar Garden and executive director of the Colorado Agrivoltaic Learning Center in Boulder County, Colorado. It is the largest commercially active agrivoltaic system in the United States. Mr. Kaminick is a former U.S. diplomat and a returned Peace Corps volunteer. He holds an MS in environmental engineering from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Welcome, Byron.
4: Thanks for having me.
5: Well, I am thrilled because I think what you are doing there in Colorado is revolutionary and has the potential to change the way we farm in the future. So in 2016, you moved to your family's 24-acre farm south of Longmont, Colorado. What was it that led you back to the farm?
4: I I had no idea that I would be building a solar array or, or learning more about farming and agriculture.
5: Well, I'm really curious about the transition of this farm. And if I'm understanding correctly, the farm had been growing and selling hay for about 50 years, but it was no longer paying the bills. So you enter the scene and you've got an idea to bring in agrivoltaics. You should explain what agrivoltaics is.
4: Agrivoltaics is the coupling of solar energy with agriculture. So it's uh, solar panels above agricultural activities, which could be sheep or growing lettuce or a variety of different types of agricultural activities, even towards growing raspberries or apple trees underneath solar panels. People are doing it in different parts of the world. But the shade that the solar panels provide to the plants as well as to land create different microclimates that can help enable different types of plants to prosper in those areas or others to be hindered. So it's figuring out how to use those microclimates created by the solar panels to optimize the growth of select crops or helping out with different types of vegetation for livestock to be able to feed on
5: so how did you become aware of it and want to engage with this technology on your
4: land the idea started with i had a friend in the solar industry that came to the farm one day and said you got flat land you're next to a three-phase line you're only a couple miles from a local substation you're in a good shape for building a solar array so you can tie it into the grid as a community solar garden and sell your electricity you should look into that so i did i figured out that we could build a one megawatt system on our farm, something enough to power about 300 homes, and took that idea to the county and said, how about I build this on my land? And they said, no, your land's for farming, so go back to it. I didn't care much for that. So for the next year, I had a mix of arguing and working with them to change their land use code at the end of 2018 that allowed for us to be able to build a solar array on our land and also change the land use code for everybody else in the county so other folks could do it too. And at the same time, we want to bid with Excel Energy to tie into the grid as a community solar garden. During that time frame, I think in early 2018, I was trying to find money to build the system since I'm not a wealthy person and came across a friend of a friend that worked for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in agrivoltaics. And that fella plus a professor from the University of Arizona came out to our farm and brought me a pretty crappy beer that was made from honey underneath solar panels. I like the idea of keeping the land functional underneath solar panels. So those two gentlemen I uh, credit with getting me the idea for making adaptations to the solar array to enable for agricultural activities to occur.
1: Welcome back to Eco Radio KC. So Terry, thank you very much for finding that excerpt of Byron Kominick from Jack's Solar Garden in Colorado talking about agrivoltaics. I thought that was excellent. So we're, we're here in studio. We're talking with uh, Karen Willey from the Douglas County Commission. And um, you had brought up the sort of the third use of the land underneath solar panels in a rural uh, uh, setting that's valuable. And that is sort of what you called, what did you say, passive? Passive agriculture? Or how did you how did you say that?
2: Uh, I think those eco- ecological services and the pollinator we're calling that passive agrivoltaics. Ag- it's,
1: passive it's, agrivoltaics. There's uh-huh. less ag in I that, I suppose. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and I, you know, from from what I have learned from from Patty, my wife, the native plant expert in the family, you know, I I I do believe that you could greatly improve the soil health and the biodiversity in your area if you if you used your land for that and then I think you the idea of also um, growing some seed you know native plant seed is is very interesting it kind of turns one of the one of the fears that people had that I heard from sort of our community was wow if they want to if they want to plant all of that with native, will there be enough seed for the rest of us and so that sort of turns out yeah let's turn that into a a little seed factory so that I think that's all good I did want to point out that one one thing about the Jack solar farm uh, arrays that may be a little different than what we've seen in our area is that they mounted them a little bit higher and some of the reasons they they are not doing grazing they're not doing um, native plants they're doing cash crops they are trying to grow tomatoes and peppers and vegetables kales and there's some really interesting ways that they can utilize the the zones relative to those tilting panels and some get the early Sun and some get the late Sun and some get more moisture because they're between the two panels and any rain kind of naturally goes there and so if you go onto their website, you can see lots of information. Um, one of the things you also hear from their um, farmers is that they like the shade, you know, so I think that's another reason that the, that the sheep like the shade and that sheep seem to thrive in agrivoltaics is that they, they put on weight and they're really healthy because they're not as stressed because they have some shade to be in. So
2: You've really pegged on something that has been key in the conversation about agrivoltaics, which is how much do we modify the panel construction from what the energy companies are preferring. Um, and, and so there's a lot of fun things and exciting things to think about in terms of if you raise the panels um, or if they can be you know, um, set up as, as vertical panels, uh, What what can be done with the land then. But I think one of the things that we need to learn as a culture is how to uh, create food opportunities around the panels um, as the companies are interested in in putting them up. And that's not because because of their cost analysis exactly, but even adding another 24 or 36 inches of post to every solar panel. On uh, say a thousand acres uh, of land, that's a, a resource cost to the earth too, sure. um, and and we know we're going that these installations are going to be rolled out over you know quite a few acres across the United States, miles, square miles even across the United States. So. Um, learning how to, to work those two as closely together as we can. So I'm interested in both pieces, um, but I'm, I'm especially interested in what can we make, what can happen with the, the installations as they're kind of planned to be. Uh, and keep in mind that as those um, panels are rotating on their axis, um, depending on time of day, you have access underneath you know, walkable or tractable access under one side of each of those panels. So is that an opportunity in addition to kind of these micro uh, climates uh, for growing different things?
1: Sure. Um, I know you have a list of kind of four principles or four uh, four aspects of agrivoltaics. Is that how you would say it? I, I, I want to give you time, make sure that you have a a chance to present that.
2: Uh, I appreciate that. So within the regulations, we are n- not prescribing exactly how the agrivoltaics needs to happen um, because there's so much that's not known. And what we really need is for us to be open-minded and creative in bringing people onto the land uh, for these uses. Uh, but as we've heard back from energy companies, they're like, but we don't know what you want. You know, <laughs> This mind reading part of it is, is not working out well. So I started to put some thoughts like, what can I, of, of my own thoughts, being only one of three commissioners, and this is only one aspect of very complicated projects, what do I think looks like success for an agrivoltaics program um, for Douglas County? And I came up with four things, and the first is that they that there be they identified a third party that is the gatekeeper for what does success look like? Um, who Counts as an agrivoltaic producer. Um, I think there wasn't a level of trust in the community that energy companies would really push for success in that, or that they would have the same metrics the community would have. So this this trusted third party, where it's not the county and it's not the energy company, but it's someone kind of shared by both of them, probably a nonprofit, would be my assumption, um, that would kind of. Be funded through the program, but also kind of ch- take that liability back from the energy companies for like what is for that success. The second would be that they be highly cooperative across um, a variety of partners. We have in Douglas County so many great nonprofits and programs that do ecology, uh, native plants, local food really trying to create kind of that that network of people that could be involved in a project like this, especially because there's so many acres to be had. Um, the third would be there'd be no artificial cap on the, the number of acres that could be used for agrivoltaics. So not saying you know, this percent or this number of acres, but saying if, if the program is successful and can grow to a larger footprint, to making sure that the leases and other agreements they have with landowners um, allow for that expansion, um, and the fourth would be that the, the companies that are applying would have some kind of a, a, a significant investment in infrastructure that supports that program so it depends on what the program looks like if they're saying it's going to be vegetable production then it might be a you know a wash pack station um, if it's if it's research and education it might be a classroom if it's uh, you know grazing it might be you know catch facilities and, and working facilities for veterinary care uh, that, that that investment in infrastructure be you know significant to know that that project is destined for success uh, so those are for pretty loose things they could look still like anything so just hoping that companies will bring us something creative that the community is interested in and and fills needs in douglas county
1: yeah those sound really well thought out Um, do you feel that your ordinances do capture all of those or or
2: the ordinances require that there be agrivoltaics the ordinances do not specifically say how many number of acres or what percentage of the project because we didn't want to limit it in the same way that we didn't want to um we wanted to see that that we had the opportunity to to get something really good out of it uh, it is not specific enough but we didn't have the information to, to know how to do that um since then there have been some Fairly major uh, research projects across the country. I think one based out of University of Colorado and one in Ohio um, that are starting to to dial some of these in. Um, so we just these four things are, are me trying to put my thoughts onto um, how do we signal back to these companies what kinds of things they should be looking at that they weren't necessarily coming up with on their own because there's a you know translation between agriculture and engineering that some of these companies were struggling with.
1: Yeah. Well, and in a way, they form kind of a strategy that fits together, in, sort of in my mind. That's you know? the hope. Yeah, I think so. I really, you know, the, some of my thoughts, I, I took notes on, on what you were saying. I do think the infrastructure piece is going, is going to be very important, particularly, uh, you know, if, if it is going to be sheep grazing, we, we don't have that much of a, of a sheep market here not that we couldn't grow sheep but I don't think we just haven't and I think that's why other parts of the country that where they do have kind of the critical mass in terms of the the shepherds that could bring in their flocks and you know rotationally graze underneath panels that they're available and then they also have the, the the vets and they have the meat processing lockers that know how to you know Turn those into what we need, you know, or even the fiber. And so, I think those are those would all be really good things. That may, maybe somebody needs to look at it holistically and and devote some money so that we have, you know, the the processing plant that then allows the um, the third party person to manage the, the thing and then test it in a small area and then without the the cap that you talked about, be able to then ramp it up and make it. A bigger and better good for the whole community.
2: Well, my understanding is that K-State has had much the same thought that you did of needing to look at this kind of whole ecosystem, especially around sheep or sheep and goats, um, because they can share a lot of of infrastructure together um, to make Kansas a bigger player in that field. There is quite a market. Most of that market still is on the coasts for uh, sheep and goat meat both. Um, You mentioned the American Solar Grazing Association, Mm -hmm. and they have a... A, a very well-tuned machine between um, shepherds and solar facilities in the northeast. So it is very common to co-use those facilities in the northeast. But those are typically smaller um, and separate structures. So they'd come in and they would graze this solar installation and then they would pull the sheep out and go to the next one. So it's more of a transportation issue, whereas this could possibly have like a central or working facilities or something that could be shared by perhaps multiple shepherds and multiple um, businesses. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I know that you can't speak specifically about the, the proposal that's uh, kind of under consideration in, in Douglas County right now, but a lot of my talk was on that. Um, I, I think that they're on the right track. I think that some of the, some of the things that I'm hearing, you know, in terms of the power companies wanting to, um, give some grants and get some groups in to do, to do research. I think that that sounds really good to me. I think that some of these early projects are going to be very instrumental in our state. You know, if, if we can do it right and do it in a high profile place, I think it makes sense to have it here in Douglas County that's a little less remote than maybe, you know, Central Kansas or Western Kansas. And I think that for the power company, there are some reasons there is a, a coal plant just north uh, of Lawrence, south of the river, but north of Lawrence, that we've been you know, reporting about the need to close that down so it doesn't you know, make the carbon pollution. Um, and I think that this is sort of fitting into one of their plans, possibly to retire it from coal and make it into more of a, of a natural gas-powered peaker plant so it would only run when it would be needed. And then um, by having a solar array, a big one in that area, it, it makes sense to, to put the, the generation of those electrons right where we already have the substations and where we know we need the load. And so there's, there's lots of good reasons for that. So I, I'm sort of encouraged by the project, but I, I know that, that, that you can't speak to it specifically.
2: You're right. I'm going to stay cautious on that. That In terms of the process, we have an active application in Douglas County um, that you can speak to as much as you like, but it okay. has passed through the uh, Planning Commission stage, um, and that ha- it received a vote of 4-4, and then that comes to the uh, Douglas County Commission. We will likely see that in March and get to evaluate that project at that time.
1: Yeah, I noticed that the plan for that was a little larger than what your ordinance had talked about. So did they get a variance for that, or you're shaking your head? Is that is it not as big? What, what's
2: so the 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 maximum number of acres that we are allowed into the Douglas County regs, which is still pretty huge, is a thousand acres of just under the solar panels, just the arrays themselves. Um, it doesn't count um, alleyways or waterways or you know, access roads, and so the the. Application that we have that's active at the moment has, I believe, somewhere in the ballpark of 670 acres under the solar arrays and about just over thousand oh, acres okay. total yeah. footprint. Oh, okay. I hadn't so it does, up on that. So it does fit within okay. what we have at the oh, moment. That,
1: that clears that up. Yeah, a thousand acres is is a large area. So I think that it. But you know, uh, to your point, we we need the we need the energy and we're it's it's cheaper. And it's going to happen, you know, and so either we regulate it and do it in a responsible way or, or we don't. And if we don't, we're just going to end up with a lot of smaller, uh, you know, arrays that that aren't managed, you know, in, in a responsible way to to my way of thinking. Would you agree with that?
2: I think the Douglas County regulations and this additional conversation about agrivoltaics really gives us an opportunity to protect a lot of land that will soon be under consideration across the country for projects like these. Um, I spoke with organizations from coast to coast um, and and people were not thinking about at this level. So the the grading, the agrivoltaics, the soil health testing Um, local well water testing like really capturing the information about what's happening there that's kind of unprecedented so I I think that Douglas County has an opportunity to help um, when these projects do roll out in other places that they are more gentle on the land if possible
1: yeah and during the break you you mentioned that in your ordinances you also are going to require some soil testing some before and after kinds of things
2: Yes, there's some good soil health tests available. Um, they look at the whole diversity of organisms in the soil. Um, and, and so that, that will be required periodically throughout the course of the project. So you know, before before it's constructed, after it's constructed, and at, at different points at the time, and then after it's decommissioned. So we really want to capture what is happening with that soil uh, and how do we, how do we tune that and learn from that to make that better. All right.
1: Well, Karen, um, I think we've packed in as as much information as we could into our hour, but I do very much appreciate you coming on to the show and on short notice and sharing your passions and expertise on this subject. And I wish you well in your county, and hopefully um, you're going to do great things, and it's going to be a role model for the rest of us. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: This is Maria vasquez Boyd, producer and host of ArtSpeak Radio. Starting Wednesday, January 24th, ArtSpeak Radio will air from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. We'll continue our mission to bring you the best in the art world. Tune in to ArtSpeak Radio, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., only on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. KKFI is always accepting applications for new volunteers. Whether you'd like to learn how to produce a radio show, edit audio, or sit on our board of directors, you can help lead our organization into the future. You can go online to kkfi.org and click the menu link to apply to be a volunteer at 90.1 FM. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of January 29, 2024. Inside Climate News Reports. In November 2023, the EPA issued a draft assessment that updated its understanding of the health risks associated with coal ash, the waste left over after coal has been burned to produce electricity. The assessment concluded that even small amounts of the toxic material can lead to harmful health effects, including risk of cancer 35 times higher than previously suggested by the EPA. The assessment focuses on the use of coal ash in previously unregulated settings, often for so-called beneficial uses, such as structural fill. Those exposed to coal ash could face an elevated risk of cancer from incidental ingestion of arsenic and radium, in addition to direct exposure to gamma radiation from radium. These new findings raise concerns about the continued storage of coal ash in unlined pits. One of the objections to utility-scale solar power is that local communities will be left to cover the cost of cleanup at the end of a project's life. Solar farms are built to last about 30 years, so a project built today should still be going until the 2050s. Since the vast majority of the country's solar power was built in the last five years, we have many examples of recent projects and almost no examples of what happens at the end of their lives. Decommissioning a solar farm involves removing the panels, racks, wires, and other equipment and taking action to restore the ground to its previous state. One part of the solar farm that may remain is the posts that were placed several feet below ground to hold the racks. Whether the posts stay or go is usually specified in the teardown plan if a teardown plan is completed. When the cleanup is done, the land can be used for agriculture if that was its its previous use or it can host some other development including a new solar farm. There is generally broad agreement that there should be regulation to make sure developers cover the costs of decommissioning their projects. In most places developers must submit a plan for removal of projects and take steps to guarantee the local communities will have minimal if any costs. Kansas and Missouri are reported as states that have no solar decommissioning laws. In these states, only local laws govern if there are local laws. Sustainability Action Newsletter reports. San Antonio, Texas has made history by approving a major deal with a local solar developer to put an estimated 13 megawatts of solar on 42 city-owned facilities and parking lots. These projects will offset about 11% of electricity consumption for city operations. Rather than one large solar project on a field, this distributed approach demonstrates how renewable energy can use already developed rooftops and parking lots. San Antonio will also be one of the first cities to take advantage of direct pay mechanisms of the Inflation Reduction Act, allowing tax credits to reduce upfront project costs. Climate Council reports. Kansas and Missouri are distributing more than $13 million to strengthen local food system. Project that touch processing, transportation, and distribution between harvest and final sale to consumers are eligible for funding under the Resilient Food Systems Infrastructure, (RFSI) program. The program, which is a partnership between state departments and the U.S. Department of Agriculture, taps funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. The Kansas Department of Agriculture said the program addresses overlooked links in the food chain. The department focused on three priorities for the funding, aggregation points, food processing, infrastructure, and storage. It's time to submit 2023 utility bill data, electricity, natural gas, and water usage for your building to Metropolitan Energy Center, which is contracted with the city of Kansas City, Missouri to offer free energy benchmarking training sessions. You can also get one-to-one help for multiple family property ownership, property management companies. To comply with the Energy Empowerment Ordinance, Owners of buildings 50,000 square feet or greater located in the Kansas City, Missouri municipality must submit energy and water consumption annually. Contact the help desk at Metropolitan Energy Center at 816-812-1319 or you can email benchmarking at metroenergy.org. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio Casey. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time.
2: They paid paradise, put up a parking lot.
0: This is Richard Mabian. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI. 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me,
3: Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, and Bob
2: Grove. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. And
3: you can send inquiries and comments to our email at
0: kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us
5: on our Facebook page.
2: Up next is Law and Disorder, followed by Fiesta Musical. And to round out your day, stay tuned for Noche Magica.
0: Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Jody Mitchell.
2: Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've
5: got till it's gone? Paid paradise, put up a parking lot.
4: You're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. This is David Bromper. If you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. I, I have no idea who you are.